0: Are you up here Luke? This is Sorry. <laughs> you got to get him where you can take him where you can get him. Right? <laughs> Luke knows I love him. Right. <laughs> How's the Easter going so far? Awesome. Fantastic. You know, this is one of those days on the calendar where people really, really tend to look forward to it. There's lots of traditions around, around the Easter season. In, in some ways, it's kind of like Christmas in that regard, where, where you have this day on the calendar, it's associated with, with church services, with families coming to visit, there's special meals that get prepared, and activities for the kids that have to go on. Perhaps some of the young families and some of the grandparents here have engaged in things like Easter egg hunts or at our house the other day, we are coloring Easter eggs, doing that again. It's always the Easter baskets. It's like the one time of year mom lets you have milk chocolate for breakfast and doesn't say too much. You might roll her eyes a bit, but doesn't say too, too much. Now, in our house, we have some of these traditions as well. Now, being a pastor, that means we go to church because you got to go to work. We have to do that. But then typically there's family that comes and visits as well. There's a lot of family around this time of year. Uh, and, of course, food. It's kind of a Baptist thing as well, having food and stuff. Now, for us, and maybe you can relate to this, for us, the food is always, always ham and scalloped potatoes. Anybody else do that? Ham? Yeah. No, not many. Got to have the ham. Right, right. So we always have the food that goes along with that, and there's kids' activities as well. But our kids are getting older now. Our youngest is 15, and the other two are young adults. And so we thought, well, maybe, maybe the kids' activities have kind of gone by the wayside. So the other day, we asked them, do you do you guys still want Easter baskets this year? And it was like we'd asked them if they wanted air to breathe. It, it was a highly offensive question to them. So it was like, yes, we want our Easter baskets. Right? I guess some things are just, are just kind of central, or just sort of traditional to, um, to certain aspects of life. And, and really, there's, there's multiple places in life where we find those types of things, where there's one event or person or activity that is just, it's just pivotal. It's just kind of central to the greater whole. Sometimes we can refer to one of these types of things as, as a linchpin. You heard that phrase before, that it's a linchpin? If you haven't heard that before, that means that it's a reference to something that holds various elements of a complicated structure all together. And if you pull that linchpin, then everything just falls apart. It's kind of like if you're playing a game of Jenga, you have all the blocks that are stacked up, and there's just that one block that's holding that precariously teetering tower in place. If you pull that one, it comes crashing down. It's, It's kind of the linchpin of the whole thing. Now, metaphorically... This can also be used to refer to a, a specific person, a person who's part of a greater whole. Maybe in your family, you have that one family member who just seems to be able to rally everyone together around the holidays. Or think of example, right now we're in the playoffs. I don't think it's a coincidence that we start having a winning team when Conor McDavid shows up. You know, there's it's kind of a, an impact that that has upon the greater whole. But we can even see this in different philosophies and even within religion as well, where there's a central figure or a core tenant that holds the rest of it together. You know, we think about Mormonism, for example, we have the person of Joseph Smith, who was very central, the founding figure of that faith. We have the five pillars of Islam, those five acts that are considered mandatory for all Muslims to engage in. But in Christianity, we have the same thing as well, because our hope And our faith all hinges upon Jesus Christ. But more specifically, upon the resurrected Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection is a central tenet of the Christian faith. You could say it is the linchpin, that one belief, that if it is removed, the rest of it just all falls apart. Because if there is no resurrection, if it turns out that it's just all a big lie... If it turns out that Jesus is still dead, that sin and death have actually won the day, then it turns out that there's no hope for us either. Paul stated this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when when he said simply, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. If Christ has not been raised, I should just get off the platform right now. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile. If Christ has not been raised, then why are we gathered here? Because we are still in our sins. You see, the resurrection is necessary for Christianity to be more than a philosophy. The resurrection is necessary for it to be more than just good moral teachings by which to use to guide your life. And it's necessary for Jesus to be more than just a good teacher or a great prophet. Really, it is the linchpin of our faith. And today, as we gather in this place, we join an estimated 2.1 billion billion people who have come together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to come together to celebrate this greatest day in human history. But I wonder, how comfortable are we with that belief? Like, how comfortable are we with this core central tenet of Christianity? Like, do you view it as one of those important beliefs that you hope no one will ask you about because you're just I'm just not quite sure what you would say to, to, to defend that or to respond to it. Perhaps you see it as a secret belief that we just don't talk about for the first six months. Once you've been around us for a while, once you're ready for Christianity 2.0, then we'll, we'll kind of drop that one on you. Or maybe you've just heard it, you believe it, and that settles it. It's just, a, it's just an act of faith for me. And that's all there is to it. Because let's be honest, it's a pretty big claim. Like, like, that's a pretty big deal, that Jesus came back from the dead. That's not normal. That's not something that's normal. If somebody came to you and said that, that their friend had come back from the dead, I think you would be suspicious. And so, we should be surprised when we hear suspicion to this. But today, we're not going to shy away from it. We're not going to shy away from this today. In fact, in the few minutes that I have to come up here and speak to you about this, I want us to open up the evidence to open up some of the evidence and examine whether the resurrection is simply a giant leap of faith. Or is it a reasonable and defendable historic truth that actually took place? And at the end of this, I hope the outcome is that we will be able to affirm our belief. But then also go forth and proclaim that he is risen. Because he is risen Indeed. Now, in order for us to do this investigation into the resurrection, we need to understand how this type of assessment is done. Because different fields of study have different ways that they conduct research. If you remember back to your junior high science, in science classes and in scientific discovery, they use what's called empirical evidence, right? Remember that term from, from, sc- excuse me, from school? It basically means that, that you observe data, you record it, and then you analyze it as part of scientific method. Now, this proves problematic for historians because we can't personally observe and record events that happened in history, unless you have a time machine, which would be fantastic if you do. If you had a time machine, you could do that. You could go back and debate Plato yourself. You could go set up a lawn chair and, and watch one of the great wars take place. You could go back and meet Henry VIII and ask him, what's the deal? Like, what's, what's he so angry about? Right? But, but instead, historians have to rely upon other things. And what they do for their type of research and their type of conclusions is they use what's referred to as inference of the best explanation. Inference of the best explanation. And here's how that works. They research all the events that have taken place, and then they gather the most reliable evidence from the closest to primary sources possible. And this would include things like artifacts, various writings that they can come across, works of art, Uh, reported accounts, anything to do with archaeology. They gather all of that evidence and that data together. They analyze it. They consider the various plausible explanations. And then they conclude what would, if true, provide the best possible explanation. So that's how historians come to determine what actually happened in the past because we can't firsthand witness that. And so this is an accepted practice to to look into history, and so we 're going to apply it today to examine the historicity of the resurrection of jesus christ now we 're not even forging new territory here because not only is this common practice to really look at any event that took place in history, but this is actually a practice that has been, has been applied repeatedly throughout the centuries to look at the resurrection itself. But the very first time we can find a record of it happening is as recent as twenty five years after Jesus was resurrected. 25 years within the same generation of which the event actually took place. We find that Paul presents the essential truths of the resurrection in a similar manner. And we find this in a letter he wrote to the church in Corinth. Corinth, which is a a small city in modern-day Greece. It's a place that Paul lived for a time. And as he was living among these people, and he was preaching among them, sharing with them the good news about the resurrected Jesus Christ, he established a church there. And then after a while, he he went away. He left. But after he left, some some false teachers came in and started sharing some other ideas. They they started questioning some of these core central tenets. And they started to bring up other theories about Jesus' death and resurrection. Essentially, they were trying to pull the linchpin out from the Corinthian church's faith. Now, Paul hears about this, and is a little ticked. And so he writes a letter back to them, reaffirming the good news that he had shared with them initially, but then also going a step further, but to defend the resurrection itself. We find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-8, through 8, where we read, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 other brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. And in this passage, Paul presents three points that we're briefly going to examine here today. And we're going to briefly unpack these as evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first one he talks about is that Jesus died, he was buried, and then he was raised to life, leaving the tomb empty. The second thing we're going to look at is that after his resurrection, he appeared to literally hundreds of people who gave eyewitness testimony to what they had seen. And then thirdly, that Jesus' appearance to the disciples in particular propelled them to spread the good news throughout all nations. So we're going to look at each of these three briefly in the next few minutes here. And if I could, I could probably speak about each of these for about an hour. But you're welcome. I, I'm not going to. <laughs> okay? We can do it over coffee one day if you want. But we'll briefly touch on them today because there's so much more that can be said today than, than I possibly have time for. But we'll briefly present some of the key truths associated with each. So the first one is this. That Jesus Christ died... He was buried, and then he raised to life, leaving the tomb empty. Now, traditionally, there are theories that go to attack all three aspects of this. There are theories that attack his death, his burial, and the resurrection. Some people suggest that he didn't actually die. They, they put forth what's referred to as the swoon theory. That instead of Jesus dying upon the cross, he merely fainted, was then placed in the tomb, and he recovered at some point later and walked out. The swoon theory. There are some people who say he actually wasn't buried in the tomb, that, that they, the women went to the wrong tomb, or that his body was stolen before it was placed in the tomb. Maybe Rome stole it, or, or the disciples, or maybe some of the Jewish leaders stepped in there and stole it. I'm not going to say any more about these ones. reason being is because there are countless theories that attack all three of these aspects, and they are refuted by all serious historians, regardless of religious affiliation. His serious Christian and non-Christian historians agree that all three of these are very, very weak accusations against the reality. And here's some reasons why. Because first of all, both the Jewish and the Roman sources that we find admit that Jesus was dead, that he was buried, and that there was a problem. The problem being the tomb was empty. We don't only find Christian documents that show this. We find Jewish documents and Roman manuscripts that show evidence that they were worried about something that had just taken place. In fact, immediately following this, we find in our own Bible, in Matthew chapter 28, it's recorded that the chief priests were already starting to, to plot a little bit how we're going to deal with this. They had called the guards in that had been at, present at the tomb, and it started to saying, okay, here's what you're going to tell your commander. You tell him you fell asleep, and that the disciples came and stole the body in the middle of the night. That's what you ought to go say. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was one of the guards at the tomb... I'm not sure I want to go to my commander and tell him, one, I fell asleep, and two, the noise of that stone being rolled away and all the ruckus of stealing the body. I was just so tired, man. I slept through that all. I just missed it. Because in both scenarios, whether that is the truth or the truth, which we find in Scripture, either way, you've got problems. And your probably human nature is you're going to go with the passive least resistance. And it seems like the lie was easier to deal with than the truth. And so they're trying to scheme and plot in this direction already. But also, keep in mind, they had killed Jesus. He was already dead. As far as they were concerned, they'd won. That he was no longer a threat. That it was all over with. So why in their own writings would they admit that the tomb was empty? It doesn't stand in their favor for them to admit that if they already had won and killed him. The only reason that logically they would be willing to admit in their own writings that the tomb was empty was if the evidence of that was so strong they had no other choice but to admit that that was what was going on. In the legal field, this is what is referred to as positive evidence from a hostile witness. Where you have a witness on the other side of the courtroom who has no choice but to admit something that's strong for your case because they'll just look foolish if they contradict it, because the evidence is so heavy against them, they have to admit to what happened. It looks bad for the priest's case in this situation. But quickly, to go along with this, Jesus' followers also begin preaching the resurrection very, very quickly in Jerusalem, right after these events happened. They didn't go off to some obscure city. No, within days, they go to the street corner in the very city of which he had been crucified, and they get up on their soapboxes and start pronouncing that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now keep in mind, everyone in Jerusalem knew Jesus. Everyone in Jerusalem knew what had happened to him. Whether you were for him or against him, you knew what had taken place. And wouldn't it be kind of silly to go stand in your soapbox and say, he has risen, the tomb is empty, when people can walk two blocks down the road and go check it out for themselves. If the body is still in the tomb, they'd be looking pretty foolish and be discredited immediately. And yet they stand there preaching, causing concern for people because a problem existed that is acknowledged within the city at that time. But then thirdly on this point, the empty tomb is really supported by a historically reliable story. When we look at the accounts of the resurrection, it's such a simple story. It it lacks the elements of legend. If you look at any of the legends and the myths that develop over time in other cultures, and even within the Christian faith, we find these these other gospels that have legends and myths in them. They they have certain characteristics to them of, of sensationalism, and they tend to grow and develop over time. These types of things are missing in the resurrection accounts we find in scriptures for two reasons. Number one, they're extremely simple. They're a very basic, straightforward, factual event of what took place. But also, in the telling of them, they, they start naming names. They start bringing up specific people. And every time you're creating a story that could potentially be fiction, and you start specifically pointing people out, your ability to maintain that fiction starts to gradually and consistently decrease. For example, they mention the person of Joseph of Arimathea. This guy was well-known throughout the city. He was well-known throughout Judea. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which would be the equivalent to today's Supreme Court. And so, people of the ruling class were so well known that to to create and pull off a fictitious story about them was extremely difficult to do. The other thing that we see is that in the Gospel accounts, they list women as the first people to find the empty tomb. Now, I'm sorry to say, but at that time, that didn't mean anything. At that time, in that culture, the testimony of a woman was considered worthless. And so, it's commonly believed that if the empty tomb story were a legend, then it is most likely that male disciples would have been the ones to first discover the empty tomb. If you were just going to make it up and write it, and you wanted to have any hope of validity in your story, you would have had the guys finding the empty tomb, not finding the women. The fact that women, whose testimony was deemed worthless, were the chief witnesses, can only be plausible if they actually were the discoverers of the empty tomb. Therefore, we have very good reason to believe confidently that, number one, Jesus died, that not only did he die, but he was buried, and that the tomb was found empty. But let's add to this a second point, attesting more to the truth of the resurrection itself, not just the empty tomb. You see, because the second thing that we find is that many people report having encounters with Jesus after they find the empty tomb. Paul mentioned this in that passage I read to you where he says Jesus appeared to Peter, he appeared to the twelve, and then to 500 others, many of whom were still living at that time of writing and receiving of this letter. So what we have here are hundreds of people giving eyewitness testimonies. What we have here is Paul saying, this is what I told you, this is what I stand behind and I believe, if you don't believe me, ask that crowd of people over there, and they'll back up everything that I'm saying, is essentially what he's putting forth here. Now, this is a broadly, what's broadly accepted by historians is that Christians and others, disciples in particular, believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that they saw what they understand to be the risen Jesus. It's not really doubted, it's not really debated that the disciples believed they saw Jesus. The question goes more to what actually took place there, what did they actually see, not did they actually believe that they saw something. And one of the primary theories that's offered to take the disciples' testimony at face value but to refute the resurrection is that it was a hallucination, is what is put forth. Now, this is, happens because they believed the disciples genuinely saw something and believed what they saw. But belief doesn't make it true, Right? Like, I believe that one day I will have six-pack abs. Maybe even an eight-pack. Those top two are really tough to get. You know, I will have those chiseled abs. But I may believe that. It's not going to happen. Unfortunately, it's just not going to happen. Belief is not enough to make that happen. And so, the suggestion here is that in their grieving state, that their minds played tricks on them, and that they had hallucinations of Jesus visiting them. is one of the primary theories to, to refute what they claimed that they saw. Now, one of the biggest challenges to this is that all 12 of them saw this, plus 500 others. And I don't know how you would manage that for all those people to see the same hallucination. Because that's not how hallucinations work. Like, I can't walk into this room and say to you, Man, wasn't that an awesome dream I had last night? Because dreams don't work that way. Dreams, vision, hallucinations are individual. They're not a shared experience. But the other problem with this is just is the sheer number of people that are involved in giving this eyewitness account, this eyewitness testimony to the fact that they encountered Jesus. Now, if I came out here and the first thing I said is, guys, when I was just backstage, Don Cherry stopped by my office and wished us good luck today. They're doing Coach's Corner for my office tonight on, on Hockey Night in Canada. You would be highly suspicious that that happened. However, if he walked in the room right here, right now, and greeted all of you, your suspicion would plummet, because not only are you witnessing for yourself, but when you go report that to all of your friends or your relatives, you could say, hey, if you don't believe me, just ask all of these people. You see, eyewitness testimony is the strongest testimony you can have in court. And the power of its strength increases with the number of witnesses that are present to back up the person after person after person after person who experienced it. And that's what's happening here. As Paul says, this is what I experienced. This is what I believe to be true. I did not hallucinate. I saw the risen Christ. If you don't believe me, ask these 500 other people what they experienced as well. And that's what we find in these eyewitness accounts. So if the tomb is empty, the disciples and hundreds of others have given eyewitness testimony to what they encountered, the living Christ. Let's now add to that this third point. That as Jesus appeared to the disciples, they left their lives that they had gone back to and committed the rest of their days to their dying breaths to spreading the good news throughout all nations. Now as a result of that appearance and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, they went out and they established the church. The church that we here today are continuing as well. Remember, these guys, before they met Jesus, they were fishermen and tax collectors and tradesmen. And when Jesus came to them and said, follow me, they dropped everything, and they followed him. But then when they thought he was dead, they go back to what they know. In the final chapter of the book of John, we see that Peter and six others are like, hey, let's go fishing. Let's go back to what we were doing before. Let's head back. If Jesus is dead, if the causes died with him, it's time to get back to reality. But then he appears to them, and they realize the story isn't over. And he gives them the command to go and to make disciples of all nations. And, and they, they were fishermen, and they get called, and then he dies, and then they go back to what they knew before. Something there again happens that calls them to leave that profession once again and commit every single day of the rest of their lives to this mission to go and proclaim the good news. And it was the beginning of that mission that would take them to the farthest reaches of the known world. They would go out to places like Italy and Greece and Spain and India, Turkey. they go to Russia and Syria, North Africa, Ethiopia, Persia, Armenia. They went as far as they could go in the known world. These fishermen, tax collectors, and tradesmen. Clearly, something happened. So significant that they were willing to dedicate the rest of their lives to this. Was it a symptom of grief? Were they just not willing to let the cause die? And so they fabricated a lie? They made the biggest hoax in human history? And what's the likelihood that they could keep that lie alive for decades? For decades until the truth died with them? And besides, what would be their motive? What would be their motive for doing such a thing? Like, like people do things for a reason. People don't do things without a reason. So what could their reason have been? Money? Fame, high-ranking positions, they received none of these things. In fact, they received the exact opposite. In fact, what they received was hardship and persecution, poverty, isolation, imprisonment. There was absolutely zero earthly gain for what they dedicated their lives to following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to build upon this is what I personally believe to be the most convincing piece of evidence That over the course of time, as the good news of Jesus spread, as they endured all of these hardships, eventually 10 of those 12 would suffer and die as martyrs in horrific ways, in absolutely atrocious ways, because of this belief. They were not killed because they claimed Jesus was a good teacher, they were not killed because they said he was a prophet. They were killed because they were spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior, whom they wanted everybody to know so that they could have a relationship with him as well. If they had been willing to recant this belief, if they had been willing at the threat of death to deny Christ, to to give up the lie, their lives would have been spared. But they couldn't do that because they knew what they had seen. They knew what they had experienced, and they knew that he was alive. They knew the truth. They knew that this was the linchpin to their very faith and to the hope in the future of the Christian church. And so to their very last dying breath, they proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior, because they knew it was true. You know, at best, I give odds that maybe one or two of them could have kept the lie to death, but not ten of them. The only way I can see that ten of them would stick to the story to death is if it was true, if they genuinely believed it was true. Much more could be said about each of these. But these are three independent, established facts that point towards the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe that these provide evidence that we have reason to believe, not just on a giant leap of faith, but sound rational evidence that the biblical story of the resurrection is the most plausible explanation for what the events show us. And if we deny the resurrection, that doesn't actually solve our problem. It creates more problems because we've just denied one challenge of history and replaced it with three other mysteries that we need to figure out as well. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we celebrate today is a defendable position to hold. It's not something that we should be hiding or we should be shying away from in the public square. Yes, it does sound fantastical. But that's because it's fantastic. That's because it is absolutely amazing that God loved each and every one of you enough to not only send his son to teach and to exemplify the life that we should live, but also that Jesus would give up his life upon the cross to pay the price for our sins. Because all of us at one time or another, probably more often than not, have wronged each other and we've wronged God and fallen short of his perfect standard. And that has led to what the Bible refers to as as death, as, as that spiritual separation, that spiritual death as we are separated from God because of our sin. But Jesus took that penalty, that punishment upon himself so that we could be free from the bondage of sin, so that we could be free from the shame and the guilt, we could be free from those hidden lives that we feel we're prone, that we have to live, and instead that we could live with him eternally. But Jesus did not stay dead. He did not stay in a grave or in a tomb. No, that's not what happened. After he paid the price, he conquered sin and death, and he rose victorious to life again. So that all of us, when we accept that free gift of salvation, he made possible for us. When we become identified in his victory, which is exactly what our baptismal candidates were explaining today, that they have died with Christ and are risen to newness of life. When we do that, when we choose to be united with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection... We too, ladies and gentlemen, are victorious. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news, the truth of the good news, the solid foundation upon which we can stand and we can boldly proclaim Jesus is risen because he has risen indeed. God, may each of us be on this journey to continually and gradually grow in our knowledge and our faith and understanding of who you are, of how you love us, and how we can go forth like the disciples, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.